this psalm says in a nutshell, in a one sentence. So, let's begin our journey. It's a beautiful morning. It's a little bit cool outside, which is perfect for walking. We know later on we're going to have to shed some layers because it's going to get hot. We can see the sun coming up. But right now it's still nice and cool. And so we get in. We get into this kind of this rhythm of walking. And we follow up. But we end up behind this father and behind this son. And we can hear him talking. We can see him uh, going back and forth. And this little boy reaches up and he grabs his dad's hand as they're walking. And his dad says Psalm 129 from memory. And he's got this deep fatherly Johnny Cash kind of voice. <laughs> so maybe that wasn't supposed to bring that part up. But this is what I picture. So Psalm 129, the father says this. He says, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. When the father's done saying this, the little boy looks up at him. And he's got this kind of confused look on his face. And he's like, what does that mean, Daddy? And so the father looks at him and says, well, he says, it's, it's God's way of preparing us for the future by looking to the past. What do you mean, the little boy asked. He says, if we look back and we saw how God had saved us before, we know he's going to save us again. And so we're going to have hope and we're going to have strength in the future. It's like this. It's like God is saying to us, persevere through affliction. Even when it appears that your enemy has prevailed, because I am righteous. I will bring the evil ones to shame and to punishment, and the righteous ones to blessings and to glory. They walk along a little bit more, and the dad realizes, you know, the son just doesn't quite get it. It's too much for him to go. So he says, look, let me just break it into little small pieces for you. We can see a big look of relief on the boy when he says that. So he says, let's look at verse 1 and 2 first of all. He says, verse 1 and 2 say, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. But Israel now say, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. He says, you see how they say it twice? And then he says, let Israel, let Israel as a whole, all the people say this. And he says, they have afflicted us. They've plowed, the plowers have plowed upon our back. They made long furrows. Think about that. If the plowers plowed on your back and they made the long um, furrows, what position would you be in? We can see the little boy scrunch up his face and he says, well, you'd have to be on your stomach, laying on the ground. He said, boy, that would really hurt bad. And his dad asked him, he says, have you ever felt like this? And the little boy says, uh, Maybe once when you yelled at me after I uh, talked back to mom. <laughs> so the dad laughs and he says, well, yeah, that may be and you might have felt that way. But that really isn't quite what this is talking about. He says, this is more like the Israelites when they're in slavery in Egypt. They're in, they're in Egypt for 400 years and they become slaves. 
And Pharaoh ends up hating them. And Pharaoh makes them slaves, and he makes them to make these bricks out of this straw and this mud and to build these cities. And then when Moses comes, he gets mad, and he gets mad at him. So then he makes them make these bricks without giving him the straw. So they have to go out and they have to get the straw and they have to come back and make the bricks. But they have the same quota. They still have just as much work to do, but their work is now twice as difficult. And at that point, it appears that they're completely prevailed upon. It appears that the enemy had won. It appears that they had lost and that there was no hope. They're slaves in a foreign country. They're completely oppressed. And oftentimes it appears that way for us. It seems sometimes that the wicked do prosper. And it feels like things just can't get any worse. And then they do. They get worse. Lots of times the enemy does seem to prevail for a time. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the furnace? Seemed like the enemy prevailed there, right? They were thrown into the fire. Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. And they rolled the stone over so he couldn't get out. Joseph was sold by, ver- by his very own brothers. Then he was thrown in jail after being wrongly accused by Potiphar's wife. The enemies appear to prevail, and they do for a while. As we look on and we see the boy and the father walking, the boy stops. And he looks up at the father with a concerned look on his face. He says, who are our enemies? So the dad looks down and he says, Israel had real enemies, and so do we. And he says, sometimes they're corporate enemies that are against God's people as a whole. And we as churches will have to fight. We'll need strong leaders to do this, ones who are willing to make a stand, ones who are willing to sacrifice, ones who are ready to do what is necessary on the large scale, just like Israel was. But usually our enemies are closer than that. And these are the ones who try to lead us into temptation. These are the ones who try to get us to sin and to try to get us to leave our faith. And according to the Psalms, they have the power to afflict us. They have the power to knock us down on the ground and to plow upon our backs. These are real enemies. This is real affliction that he's talking about here. So he says, I'll just give you a couple examples of things that could happen. Like the first example, he said, your enemy could be your boss at work. If he tries to get you to do something that's not right, something that's a little bit shady, something not quite on par. And he may try to force your hand and try to get you to go along with that. He might say stuff like, look, no one's ever going to know. How can they possibly find out? Just, just, just go with the flow. It's, it's no big deal. But if you take a stand, you say, no, that's not right. They will now feel threatened, right? Because you hold the power over them to turn them in for what they are doing that's wrong. They're going to feel vulnerable. They're going to feel threatened. They'll feel called out. They will not like it. And your boss may have power, and he may abuse this power. And you might lose that promotion or that raise or the job itself, if you don't play the game the way the game is played. If you don't make a stand for God, if you don't make a stand for holiness and for righteous living, or I should say, 
if you do. <laughs> I said that backwards. You're supposed to be making a stand for holiness. You're supposed, to be make, you're supposed to be making a stand for righteousness. I said not to, in case anybody was following closely or not. <laughs> that was a test. All right. Second thing. Sometimes it could be those who are jealous of you. Remember Daniel, right? From the lion's den? Daniel stands up for what is right. Daniel does a good job. Daniel's promoted. He goes up and up and up. And those around him become very, very jealous of what he does. And they look for something wrong with him to find some kind of a fault. And they can find nothing that they can possibly charge him with. And so they make up something. They say, the only way we're going to do this is if he goes against the law of his God. So they find a way to do it. They get him in trouble. They appear to prevail. It worked. What they tried to do worked. Daniel ended up in the lion's den. The dad says sometimes it could be your friends. Sometimes it could be your family who seem to be your enemies if they try to get you to do what's wrong. Look at Joseph. His brothers sold him into slavery. You will know this is happening because this psalm is talking about a great affliction. You will know when the plowers are plowing your back. The little boy looks up at his dad and he's talking to him. He looks hesitantly and he looks curious and he wants to know. He says, have you ever had your back plowed, Dan? The dad looks very solemn and says, yes. He said, I have. He says, very young. He says, before I met your mother, before we got married, before you had you. And I worked at this shop as like a salesman. And whenever someone came in, my boss made me look at the person and kind of evaluate it. Look at how they dressed, how they acted, how they talked, how they walked. If they appeared to know nothing about what they were buying at all, I was to charge them at least a half, or at least a half times as much as what it cost. And if they said anything, we're supposed to say, no, 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 that's the wholesale price. That's what we've never done anything lower like that. And if they still continued to fight, I was to lower the price. But if they appeared to not know what it is, I was always, always, always to get more than what it was worth and what we sold it to other people. And so I told my boss, I said, I'm not quite sure if this is right. And he just laughed at me. And he said, look, everybody does it. All is fair in trade and love. He said, look, you're, you're just too green. That's all it is. But I kept thinking about it. And you know what I thought about? I thought about your grandmother, my poor widowed mother. And I kept thinking, what would she think? I don't think she would think what I was doing was right. So what I did was I took counsel from someone else, an older guy, and asked him, what do you think I should do? And he said, I think you should take a stand. I think you should say to your boss, I'm not going to do this. And I'd rather offend you than to offend God. I was poor. This is the only job I had. I didn't want to lose it. But after some time, I decided to take a stand. The little boy's eyes are wide open. He looks at the father and says, what, what happened? You can see a faint sort of smile on the father's face. And he says, I lost my job. He fired me. I was afflicted. The plower plowed upon my back and he made long his furrow. Did you ever get it back? The boy asks, amazed. No, never. We can see the boy prepared to ask another question. But the father stops him first and he asks him a question. He says, you know, he said, my boss fired me for the wrong reasons, right? He said, I was afflicted. Can you think of any affliction that you could ever get that would be for the right reasons? And the boy looks totally perplexed now. He says, I, I don't think so at all. 
The father says, well, what about when you were talking back to your mother? And the boy's like, oh, yeah, I guess that probably would have been (laughs) right. See, we must not confuse this affliction with legitimate consequences of our action. Because there are sins. And the father says to the boy, take that situation that I was just in, right, that I just told you about. Let's say I was do- a bad worker. I was doing a shoddy job. I was disrespectful. Let's say I was disobedient. I didn't do what they told me to do. Then God's name is reviled if I act like that. And God and my boss would have been justified in what they did. And if that's the case, yes, I do suffer. And yes, God is with me in all things. But... I suffered because I did what was wrong. And I need to humble myself before God. And I need to repent and ask Him forgiveness for His help. Look at Jonah in the Bible, right? He suffered. It looked like he was greatly afflicted. The people on the boat threw him overboard and threw him into the water. But who was his enemy? Why was he even on the boat in the first place? He was there because he was disobeying God. He ran away. And they had these people on the ship had nothing wrong with him until they found out that he was disobeying God and that there was a chance that they would lose their lives. So always make sure that it's not discipline for doing something wrong. So we can see the boy now thinking, thinking the whole thing through because he knows the story of Jonah. He's learned that. And he thinks about it. He says, but wait a minute, Dad. He says, God saved Jonah with the whale. The man smiles widely and says, absolutely. Absolutely, because that's God's love. And he will save you too if you repent, if you ask him to forgive him. So the dad takes out a bag of figs. They've been walking for quite a while. He's got these nuts and these figs in this bag. And he's about to give them to the boy when a bunch of the cousins come running up and they tag him. So the boy grabs the bag of nuts and he takes off running. He's gone for a few minutes as we're walking along. And he comes back a little bit. The bag's half empty. The dad ruffles his hair. And he says... This brings us to the next part of the psalm. He says in verses 2 and 4, it says, They have not prevailed against me. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. We prevail because of who God is and because of what God does. In this passage, the author is saying, Remember this. Remember this time. Remember when you were face down, because this is what's going to be your strength later on. You will remember that it was God who saved you. You'll be prepared to fight, and you'll be prepared to persevere during that time. He says, look, he said, it's like an Israelite who just came out of Egypt, and he's looking back at what happened, and he's saying, our enemies didn't prevail. God cut the cords of the wicked. He said, we were down. We were ready to give up, and yet God gave us strength. He was the one who breathed new life into us. He showed himself to us. We were in Egypt. We were looking for straw to make the bricks. The children were the ones who were getting us the straw. They were the ones that were working. Every day they'd go further and further out. They'd have blistered hands, sun-chapped lips, their little hands filled with stubble as they came back, dirt streaking on their faces working harder than kids ever should, falling asleep as soon as they got home, as soon as they sat down, and we cried out to God, Lord, help us. It's bad enough that we have to do this. But look at the kids. Have mercy on us. And that's when God revealed his might and his power and his love. Plague after plague until we're finally out of Egypt, where at the 
edge of the Red Sea. And once again, it looks like we're in the grasp of the enemy. The soldiers are coming down. And up ahead is Moses in front of the sea. And great walls of water parting, dividing a sound that I will never, ever forget. The enemy did not prevail. The Lord is righteous. Remember this always. You'll need to know this again when it looks like the enemy is prevailing. Because we will not be prevailed upon. Because God is righteous and God will cut the cords. With Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the furnace, there appeared a fourth person, the Lord himself. And they didn't die. They weren't burnt. When they came out, they didn't even smell like smoke. Daniel, that next morning, in the lion's den, was smiling because God had saved him. Joseph ended up saving his family from the drought. We can see the boy thinking it through. Trying to figure it all out once again, because it's a lot to figure out. And he asks him, he says, how does God do this? How is it that God cuts the cords? So the father says, sometimes it's miraculously, but sometimes it's just through regular means, just through our work. Father sees that the boy doesn't quite get it and isn't quite satisfied with this answer. So he says, you know, he says, I think my good friend Ed said it best. He said, the Lord can be called the God of suspense because he never answers the same way twice. Ed says there are really three different times that God sends deliverance. The first way is before we ever need it. The second way is at the 11th hour. And the third way is after hope dies. The first one is obvious, right? He looks at the sun. He says sometimes God gives us deliverance even before we need it. And oftentimes we don't even recognize it. He provides it. Or something comes up in natural courses we're able to solve the problem. The second way is at the 11th hour. That means at the very last possible moment, God steps in before it's too late. And these are always, or mostly always, exciting times. The little boy jumps in excitedly. Yeah, just like, just like when the Israelites were in front of the Red Sea and the whole Egyptian army is just running down him and God parts the sea. And the father says, exactly. He says, now, can you guess what the last way is? What does he mean by sometimes God sends deliverance after hope dies? The little boy shakes his head and he says, I have no hope of answering why he has no hope before he dies. <laughs> the boy then laughs at his little joke as he's trying to spit the whole phrase out. And... Uh, And he says, well, let me tell you a story. He says, remember Elijah and the widow, right? He says, there's a drought in the land. The woman was picking up sticks outside when Elijah came to her. And Elijah says, do you have some food? There's a drought in the land. So the widow says, says, no, I'm picking up sticks. All I have is like one cup of flour, a little bit of oil in a jar, and that's it. What I'm doing is picking up sticks so that we can make the last meal. And then my son and I are going to die. We have no food. There's a drought. Elijah says, make the food. So she makes the food, and Elijah ends up staying with her for a long time. And as long as Elijah's there, the flour doesn't run out. The oil doesn't run out. She keeps going every day and taking out her scoop, every day making the scoop. It never goes out, pouring the oil, pouring the oil. That's deliverance at the 11th hour. They were about to die, and God sends them Elijah. And it was spectacular. It was exciting. But there's a type that's even more exciting than the 11th hour, and that's when God delivers after hope dies. Because after a while, the, widow gets, the widow's boy gets ill, and he gets worse. 
and it gets worse. And God doesn't send deliverance before he needs it. And God doesn't send deliverance at the 11th hour. There is no last minute here. The boy dies. And the widow loses hope. And she says to Elisha, what have you against me? What are you against me, O man of God? Have you come to bring remembrance of my sin and to cause the death of my son? Her son was dead. She's a widow. What does she have left? And that was when God gave her deliverance. Elijah takes the boy from her arms, carries him up into the bedroom, lays him on the bed. He cries out to God. He says, Oh, Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again. He raised him from the dead. These deliverances of hope, after hope has died, are the most amazing of them all. And so if you're afflicted, never give up hope. Even when you're in the darkness, when you can't see your way out, even when the worst that you have feared has happened, do not give up hope. Even when the plowers have plowed long furrows in the back and it appears that your enemies have prevailed, hope after hope is gone. Persevere through affliction, even when it appears that the enemies have prevailed, because God is righteous. He will bring the evil to shame and punishment, and the righteous to blessing and to glory. The sun is full in the sky, and it's time for lunch. So we sit down, we go off the road, we eat our picnic. little boy instantly falls asleep in his father's hands, because he's been walking all morning long. After a while, it's time to get up, so we start walking again. We fall right behind the two because we want to hear what they have to say. We're hanging on to every word because, you know, sometimes these things are hard to understand. It's hard to read this and really understand. And it's nice to have someone up there like that father who's explaining to us. So we tag behind. We want to find out the rest of this thing. Especially the next part we want to try to understand. The author of the psalm shows the outcome. He shows us what happens to those who hate God. He shows us what happens to those who hate God's people. He says in verses 5 through 8, May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. By saying Zion, he is implying God and his people. The father tells the boy, he says, look, he uses the picture of the grass and the roof, right? He says, you know how our roofs are. We have the beams across there, and then we have the reeds on top of it. We pack it with mud so the rain doesn't come in. And you know how sometimes the grass seeds will go on there, and they'll start sprouting up? And you know how they always die? He said, do you know why they die? The little boy thinks about it and says, well, I guess because there's no roots, room for the roots, right? And I guess it dries out after the rain goes. It's just a roof. He says, that's exactly he says, this is what happens to God's enemies. And the author says, the reaper doesn't fill his hand. The binder sheaves doesn't fill his arms. When they harvest, harvest the crops, right, the reaper grabs it in his hand and he cuts it, puts it down. The binder sheaves fills up his arms. He wraps it around. He's saying, this isn't going to happen to those who hate God. They will not be fruitful. They will not have a bountiful crop. And no one who walks by the crops is going to praise God because of what they see. There's nothing there. There's going to be no delight in fellowship. 
because of the blessings that God gives them. They will be alone. They will be rejected. They will be fruitless. Well, the boy suddenly remembers the father's story. He says, is that what happened to your boss? The Lord is righteous, the father says. He cut the cords of the wicked. He said, yeah. He said, pretty soon no one trusted my boss because he had cheated so many people and the word got around. Now, or seven years later, he became bankrupt. Now he lives in poverty and he can scarcely feed himself. He was put to shame and he was turned backward. The father says, you know, this happened very quickly. Seven years might not seem quick for someone your age, but that was pretty quick for that justice to happen. See, God doesn't always act like this. So remember, God is sovereign and he has a plan that lasts eternity. And sometimes the wicked don't get punished right away. Sometimes it's a long time before they get punished. But here he's saying this is a promise from God. They will be punished. The dad stops them. They stop walking. He turns to his son. He says, now, think hard on this one, because this is kind of difficult to understand. The passage says, may all who hate Zion be shamed, put to shame and turn backward. And then he goes basically on and says, let them be cursed. Do not let these people be blessed. Does that sound right? The father asked him, can we pray like this, that these people will be cursed, and that they won't be blessed? The little boy looks, looks at the ground for a minute as he's walking, or as they're staying there. He's trying to figure it all out. He probably says, I don't know. It sounds kind of mean. It doesn't quite sound right to do that. The dad says, it's excellent that you feel that way, because that's God's love. That's his compassion, and that's a reflection of it. He said, but you know what? God is more than love and compassion. God is a whole God, and he has so many different attributes, and one of them is righteousness. One of them is justice. It would be wrong if punishment wasn't meted out. So just stop and think about this, the Father says. Do we really want people who hate God and who hate God's children to succeed in destroying those who follow God? To tear them down? Do we really want to bless them as they afflict God's children? As they plow long furrows in people's back? Says, I think my friend Charlie probably said this best. And we have an overhead for this. Charlie was kind of long-winded, by the way. <laughs> so this is a long one. But listen, Charlie's a smart guy. He says this. He's trying to explain this whole thing. He says, it is but justice that those who hate, harass, and hurt the good should be brought to naught. Those who confound right and wrong ought to be confounded. Those who turn back from God ought to be turned back. Loyal subjects wish ill to those who plot against their king, and it is but a proper wish. It contains within it no trace of personal ill will. We desire their welfare as men, but their downfall as traitors. Let their conspiracies be confounded, their policies be turned back. How can we wish prosperity to those who would destroy that which was dearest to our hearts? We dare not wish Godspeed to evil men, lest we be partakers of their evil deeds. When persecutors are worrying the saints, we cannot say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. When they slander the godly and they oppose the doctrine of the cost, we dare not bless them in the name of the Lord. It would be infamous to comprise the name of the righteous Jehovah by pronouncing his blessing upon unrighteous deeds. This present age is so flippant that if a man loves the Savior, he is styled a fanatic. 
And if he hates the powers of evil, he is named a bigot. As for ourselves, despite all objectors, we join heartily in this combination and we would revive in our hearts the old practice of Ebal and Gerizim, where those who are blessed who bless God, and those who are cursed who make themselves a curse to the righteous. The boy takes off and he tries to catch a butterfly. He's running all over. He comes back. He returns to the father. The father looks at us and he winks. And he says, now I've got another question for you. So we ask the boy, he says, in this psalm, what does God say will happen to the righteous people in the end? The boy thinks for a minute, and he answers, nothing. It, it doesn't even really mention them. The father smiles. He says, you're right. He says, it doesn't. But it's implied that the righteous will obtain the opposite of what the unrighteous will get. So, those who love God... Their lives will bear much fruit. They will be blessed by God. They will have fellowship. The reapers will fill their hands and the binders their arms. All who walk by will say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Those enemies will be brought to shame. They will be turned backward. We will be brought to glory. We will bear fruit. That's what happened to you, right, Dad? Said the boy excitedly. That's right, the father says. Said, I found another job. And eventually, he said, I got a business of my own, and it has prospered because we're known for character, for integrity, for promptness. But even more importantly, I now have you. I now have mom. And pretty soon, we're going to have a baby brother as well. He takes the boy. He throws the boy up in the air, and the boy just about bursts with joy. And we look in front of him, and we see a group of women riding. And we think maybe we see a pregnant woman with her head turned back, smiling. And up there in the sun, shining in the sun, we see the temple. The way that I presented this story would be a way a person before Christ would have seen it, using all the Old Testament things. And they would have looked back and they would have seen how Daniel and and all this fits in there. But we live after Christ. We live knowing what Christ has done for us. And we can look at the same psalm through the eyes of Christ and we can see that he fulfills everything that takes place in this psalm. The first part says he was afflicted from his youth. Christ was afflicted from his youth. When he was just a baby, Herod killed all the kids who were two years old and younger in an effort to get him. He escapes to Egypt, just to say that. All his life he's persecuted. And literally, with whips, they plowed furrows on his back. He was crucified. He was killed on the cross. His enemies seemed to have prevailed, but they didn't. Because Christ rose from the dead. And ultimately, those enemies will be brought to shame and to punishment. They will wither like grass on a rooftop. And if we believe, he will raise us from the dead. And we will receive blessings. We will be be fruitful. We will be brought to glory and we'll be in eternity with them forever. So it's important to understand as we travel along our own road, it's so important to understand that God is righteous, that God is sovereign, that these enemies aren't going to prevail, even if it looks like they are. God will deliver us. And it's especially important that we understand what Ed Welch calls hope, deliverance after hope dies. Because let's be honest, there will be times that hope will die. 
It's not hope in Christ that dies, but it's hope in the present situation that dies. And what we fear most might come to happen, those things that we fear the most. So we might lose that job. We might lose that marriage. We might lose that relationship with the children. We might go bankrupt or lose the house. We may fail that test. We may fail that class. Does that mean that God hasn't given up on us? Does that mean that he doesn't care about us? Does that mean that he's not strong enough to handle the situation where he's not in control? Not at all. See, that's what the enemy wants you to believe. He wants you to believe all of those things. But God's deliverance is still on the way. It might not look like the deliverance that we expected. It might not look like the deliverance that we want. But our enemies will not prevail. God is righteous and he will prevail. The band can come up now. One final thought about this, one reason why we go, why God allows us to go through this affliction, and he's talking about this severe affliction, is for the building up of our faith. There's many reasons. I only want to mention faith. Think about the faith of those who have seen deliverance after hope has died. Think about their faith. Can you imagine what it's like? Can you imagine what that widow's faith is like when she saw her son raised from the dead? Can you imagine Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they come out of the fire after walking in there and seeing Jesus with them? And they come out, they're not burnt, they don't even smell like smoke. And Daniel's faith, what was his like when he spent the night in the lion's den and nothing happened at all? Can you imagine what your faith is going to be like when you believe in God and God delivers you after hope has died, when you've given up on the situation but you haven't given up on God, when you can say with the psalmist, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made their furrows long. But the Lord is righteous. He cut the cords of the wicked. If God is for us, who can be against us? So I urge you to persevere through affliction, even when it appears that the enemy has prevailed, because God is righteous. He will bring the evil ones to shame and to punishment, and the righteous ones to blessings and to glory. Father God, we come before you now, and we just thank you, Lord, for what you do. Lord, you are all sovereign. You are all glorious. You are all knowing. You are completely in control. Many times from our perspectives, it seems that there is no control. It seems like the enemies prevail against us. It seems that we are down on the ground, Lord. Furrows dug deep. And yet this is a promise that they will not prevail. That they will be brought to justice. That we will be brought to glory. So Lord, help us to remember this. Help us to remember this always. This psalm was about great affliction. This psalm was about great persecution. And we may or may not have it as great as what this psalm was talking about. But Lord, there will always be some persecution. There will always be some affliction. There will always be some suffering. So Lord, let us look to you for our deliverance. Lord, let us look to you right away. Let us look to you at the 11th hour. Let us look to you when it appears that all is lost, because you will deliver us. 
You have promised it. You have shown us example after example after example, Lord. And we just praise your name for that now. In your name, amen.